Thanks be to God. Uh, well, have you ever been clothes shopping uh, and you find some things that you like, uh, but then when you go to the change room and, and try them on, uh, they just don't quite fit properly? Of course you have, right? If you've ever been clothes shopping, you've experienced this. I mean, like you could, you could wear them, they'd, they'd look okay, but they were clearly designed to fit someone else, someone with a different body type. See, when you design clothes, you have to design them with a certain body type in mind, right? They're, they're shaped a certain way so that they look good when a certain shape of person wears them. And if you're not that shape, then you can still wear the clothes. And in some situations, they might still fit reasonably well, but it's clear they were designed to fit someone else. And so it is with many of the prophecies and the Psalms in the Old Testament. We're beginning a new series this morning looking at the Psalms and mostly we'll be looking at what they call the Royal Psalms, the Psalms written for and about the King of Israel. But as we go through this series, what we'll see is there are places where they just don't quite fit right. A phrase here, a promise there that it's just, it's, it's difficult to see how it applies just to the King of Israel in the Old Testament. It's not as if it doesn't apply. It's just that the, the promise, the, the vision in these psalms, it just seems too big, too grand to apply only to the king of Israel in the Old Testament. It's as if these psalms were designed for someone else. Like clothes. These psalms were to be worn by the kings of Israel for a time, and they, they found their fulfillment in those kings in part. But the time would come when the true king would arrive, the ideal king. And then these psalms would find their fulfillment. Then these psalms would find their reality. Then these psalms would truly fit. And of course, we know that that king is Jesus, don't we? He came as God's anointed, as the Christ, the Messiah. He came to fulfill the Old Testament. He's the descendant promised to Abraham. He's the one described in the law. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah. He's the ultimate priest, the ultimate prophet, the final, perfect, ultimate king of Israel. And so our hope and prayer as we go through this series is that we will come in and to see and, and to know the, the grandness, the bigness, the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ, the king of kings and Lord of Lords. Because when we come to see him for who he truly is, then when we come to understand and know how awesome he is, then we will truly love him. Then we will truly serve him. Then we will truly follow him with joy and gladness. It's when we understand who Jesus is, then our circumstances, our suffering, our struggles in this life, will fade away in the light of his glory. Because he is not only the king, the king of kings, but he is our king. And so we begin this morning in Psalm 2. Have that open in front of you as we go through this morning. Would you have a look with me at verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? 
the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together and against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Now, son Sammy was a, a little younger. He's, he's four now. He, he used to be convinced he was stronger and, and faster than me. And, and he tried to prove it. He would try to prove his faster by organizing running races. And he proved he was stronger by lifting heavy things and push me off the couch and try to escape when I, I'd capture him and hug him tight. And of course, more often than not, I let him win, right? That's what, that's what dads do. But he honestly thought he could do it. He honestly thought he was faster and stronger than me. And I just laugh because he had no chance, right? He didn't understand his position. He didn't understand how ridiculous it was to think that a three-year-old could beat his dad in a strength of, uh, in a battle of strength or of, of speed. He knows now, of course, you can beat him in a race or a battle of strength whenever I want, although he likes me to pretend that he's still faster and stronger. But here's the point, right? Our natural incl inclination as humans is to think we can beat God, to think we know better, to think we can survive without him, to think even that we're better off without him. And it's shocking, the arrogance, actually, that, that creatures would think that they're better off without their creator. To think we have the strength, the ability to set ourselves up against God. And yet this is what we do. This is what humans have always done. When the Israelites entered the promised land, everyone had heard what God had done for them in Egypt. How he sent the plagues and rescued them from the Egyptians. How he dried up. The, the water of the Red Sea, and they walked through on dry ground. They'd, they'd heard and knew what God had done for them on their approach to the promised land, and, and they trembled in fear when the Israelites, when God with them, entered the promised land. Because they knew that this wasn't a God they could defeat. And, of course, they were right. As Israel entered the promised land, their God, Yahweh, fought their battles for them. It was his strength that drove the nations out before them. They conquered the promised land because God was with them. And yet once Israel was settled in the land, what did the nations do? They still plotted and fought against Israel. They still thought they could defeat God and his anointed, the king of Israel. In their arrogance, they repeated, well, it's the same mistake that Adam and Eve made. To think they would be better off without God. To think they would be more free, more wise, more prosperous. If only we didn't have to submit to God. If only we could choose. If only, if, if, if only it was up to us to define good and evil. Instead of submitting to God's rules, God's wisdom, then we will be better off. So they set themselves up against God and against his people. In working with young people, I often come across this argument. We'll be talking about the fact that God will judge and, and punish sinners, usually the topic that comes up. And, uh, you know, he'll, he'll send people to hell and they'll say something like this. They'll say, if that's what your God is like, then I would rather go to hell than spend eternity with him in heaven. They think they'll be better off 
without God. And so they set themselves up against him. Attempt to throw off his chains as if, as if they can somehow fight against him, as if they can somehow get their own way against the creator of the universe. And God laughs. Lest we think it's only those out there that do this. Let's reflect on our own lives for a minute. Because there are times where all of us make this same mistake. There are times when all of us also ignore the commands of God and instead live life our way. When we hear the command to love our neighbour as ourselves, as we heard last week, and then we act in our own best interests rather than thinking of others. What's going on there? When we, when we do this, when we ignore or even outright reject God's commands, what's going on in our minds? What's going on is we think we'll be better off if we're selfish. We'll be better off if we do life our way rather than God's way. In that moment, we make exactly the same mistake, thinking we can throw off God's chains, thinking we can throw off his shackles, set ourselves up against God and get away with it. A natural inclination is to set ourselves up against God. And so how does God respond? We'll have a look at verses four to six with me. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And Sammy used to fight against me or, or race against me. I'd laugh right, because of the ridiculousness of what Sammy thought he could do. And so when people rebel against God, when the nations conspire against God and against his anointed, God laughs. Because how, how ridiculous is it to think we can successfully rebel against him, to think we can break the chains of our creator and throw off his shackles? He laughs because there's no chance, right? What hope do creatures have? against their creator. But unlike when I'd laugh at Sammy, God's laugh comes with another emotion, anger. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. See, rebellion against God, setting ourselves up against God, is personal and insulting. To think we can simply ignore or even outright reject the creator of the universe is an insult worse than we know. And the proper and right response to our rebellion is anger, wrath, the judgment of God himself. And so those who set themselves up against God and his king would face God's anger. But what's interesting here is how God shows his anger, how he rebukes those who rebel against him. How does God terrify them in his wrath? In verse 6, he says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. 
This is God's rebuke. This is God terrifying the nations in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. How is this a rebuke? How is this terrifying? What it says is that the king in Zion, the king in Jerusalem, is God's king, is God's agent. And look at what God has said to the king in verses 7 to 9. The king speaks now, the Lord's anointed speaks and says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. All the king has to do is ask. God will make the nations his inheritance. They will be broken, dashed to pieces like pottery. The nations should be afraid. They should be terrified because God's wrath, God's anger, God's judgment on the nations is handed over to the king in Zion. And it's now up to him. All he has to do is ask. The king in Zion is not just any old king. He's God's king. And with a simple request, the nations would be destroyed. This provides an opportunity. See, if judgment now rests with the king in Zion, this gives the nations, the kings, an opportunity for wisdom. See, look at verse 10. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. There is an opportunity to show wisdom. If they will serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling, if they will kiss the sun, Submit to the king. Then they can find refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. See, God is angry with everyone who ignores, everyone who rebels and sets themselves up against him. But there is a way to be saved. There is a way to be protected from his wrath, from his anger. There is an escape. Take refuge in the king and you will be blessed. Now, of course, in in some ways we see this played out in the Old Testament with the kings of Israel. Nations would fight against God. They would set themselves up against the king of Israel, against David, who wrote this psalm. God would use his people, his king, as an instrument of judgment on those around them. Those that fought against Israel would receive punishment. Those that took refuge in them were kept safe, were blessed. Except that the clothes of this psalm, they don't entirely fit just the kings of Israel in the Old Testament. The vision here is too grand, too big. The authority given to this king, the power to destroy or save, the declaration of sonship in verse 7, it probably best applies to King Solomon, David's son. 
God said to Solomon, ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you. So Solomon asks for wisdom. Probably best applies to Solomon, but it just, it, it seems like it was designed, it was written for someone else. The vision here is too grand. And the reason why is because it was written for someone else. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are, are released from prison. And they go back to their people and they quote this psalm. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And who do they apply it to? Jesus. They say in Acts chapter 4, verse 27, they say, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Jesus is the Lord's anointed that the people rebelled against. We call him Jesus Christ. Christ means anointed. Jesus is the Lord's anointed. Jesus is God's king in Zion. In Acts chapter 13, that passage that we read a little earlier, Paul speaks in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch saying this, we tell you the good news. What God promised to our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. Jesus is God's anointed, his king in Zion, and not only his king, but his only begotten son. And God has handed the authority to judge over to Jesus, his king. He has handed the authority to rule over to Jesus, his king. Jesus has the authority to dash the nations to pieces like pottery. Jesus is the ideal king. Jesus is the perfect king, the perfect son of God that Psalm 2 was written about. Ironically, it was that very plot against him. The plot to put him to death on a cross, it was that very plot that provided the opportunity for refuge from God's wrath. The irony is, if they hadn't plotted against him, there would be no refuge. Because of his death, where he suffered God's judgment in our place, where he suffered the wrath of God in our place, because of his death, we have refuge. Could have asked the Father. We would have been destroyed in an instant. But instead of having us destroyed, instead of executing judgment against us, Jesus took our place. And so we may now find refuge in him. How? By serving the Lord with fear. By celebrating his rule with trembling. We often, I think, talk and, and think about our relationship with God in terms of friendship. Jesus is my friend. God is my best friend. Or we'll talk about God as our father, Jesus as our brother. And this, this speaks to an intimacy of relationship that's good and right for those who trust in Jesus. 
often talk with people who will tell me that their prayers are more like conversations. They'll chat with God throughout their day as if they're chatting with a close friend. And it's a beautiful picture of the intimacy we have with God. Jesus, strong and kind, right? We sang it earlier. It's a beautiful and intimate picture of friendship, of intimate relationship. The problem is if we only ever talk about God in these kinds of intimate terms, if we only ever talk about Jesus as our friend, if we forget his glory, his power, his position as king of kings and lord of lords, if we wipe from our minds any thought of Jesus as the judge of all, then the danger is we grow complacent in the way we see him. We stop searching for things to repent of. A little sin here or there, it won't make a big difference. We let other things become bigger than Jesus in our lives. We grow complacent in how much of our lives we're willing to give to him. Now, don't get me wrong, there is an intimacy to our relationship with God. Jesus is our friend. God is our father who loves and cares for us. But there is also a place for fear and trembling when it comes to our relationship with God, when it comes to living for Jesus and serving him. Not the kind of fear that has to do with punishment. That's been done away with by the death of Christ. Not the fear of punishment, but the kind of fear and trembling that comes from understanding the power of the one we serve. The kind of fear that comes from appreciating his glory and majesty. Jesus is our saviour and friend, but he is also our Lord and King. He is God's anointed, his King and his Son. So will you serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling? Will you kiss the Son? Will you take refuge in him? Will you please join with me as we pray together? Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning knowing that we, like the nations, the kings of the earth, uh, have rebelled against you, ignoring you and rejecting your commands. We live life our own way, thinking we know better than you, thinking we're better off without you. Father, we're sorry for our sins. Please forgive us and help us to obey you. Father, thank you that you sent Jesus not only as king, but also our saviour, that we might take refuge in him. Thank you that by his death and resurrection, we're forgiven for our sins and we have eternal life. Please help us not to grow complacent as we serve you, but to serve with fear and trembling. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.